Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter and the Gold, a Lord of the Rings chat podcast. Uh, I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And as always, I want to start by reminding people that uh, we are considering the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, and he was publishing works in the Lord of the Rings universe from 1937, when he was like 45 years old, up until his death, when he still hadn't made an internally consistent narrative. So uh, no one yell at us if we get a thing wrong. We're just operating under the same guidelines Tolkien was using, which was, we're making it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I have mostly interacted with Lord of the Rings through uh, just the movies. That's all I've consumed. And then through fandom stuff that I find mostly on Tumblr. And I've been sending that to Zoe for many years. Many, many years. (laughs) Yes. Um, so without further ado, Zoe has done a lot of research for this one, and I'm super excited to talk about it because uh, it's one of my favorite topics, linguistics. I am so excited because I am a language nerd, um, always have been, always will be, and Tolkien was as well, which is part of what makes his entire mythology super fascinating because he created languages to build a history out of his entire he has a quote that i found online it says the invention of languages is the foundation the stories were made rather to provide a world for the languages than the reverse to me a name comes first and the story follows so he started by making the languages and then created the world for them to fill to fit into which makes a lot of sense um I did some research on his history, his academic career and his literary production um, are inseparable from his love of language and philology, and philology is the study of languages. Uh, He specialized in English philology at university, and in 1915 graduated with Old Norse as his special subject. In 1915, Old Norse was probably so esoteric and random, everyone was like, what are you doing with your Well, I mean, it's still esoteric and random now. I mean, yes, but like, but like, especially in 1915, like, ooh. Um, he worked on the Oxford English Dictionary in 1918, focusing on the letter W. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, I love that. Um, right? Like the Oxford English Dictionary project was absolutely wild. If anyone ever has a chance to look up stuff about it, there's a book called The Professor and the Madman about the history of creating it. And there was this guy who, uh, so the, the thing about the Oxford English Dictionary is you have the definitions and then you have the first time it was ever used. And then that's like a key part of the citation. And this guy was just sending in all of these examples of like the first use of the word and or whatever. And then they found out that he was in a mental hospital. No, no. <laughs> yeah. And um, he was like pretty messed up, but he was also very focused on this project and so many people contributed to it. And it's awesome that Tolkien did as well. Wait, but it was like it was legit uses of the first use of a word, even though he was in a mental hospital. He was just no. He was. Uh, I mean, he was sending the citation. You had to send in like the the text and the quote, like all of that stuff. So he just had access to all these books, but he also oh. like self castrated himself. Oh and boy! They were like, "Oh, please stop doing this." <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I mean, rough, but weird. But yes. Cool. So Tolkien was a part of that for specifically the letter W. 
It's um, like a Sesame Street thing. I know, right? In 1920, he became a reader in English language at the University of Leeds. Um, and he raised the number of students in linguistics from five to 20 in the course of a year. He gave courses in Old English heroic verse, history of English, various Old English and Middle English texts, Old and Middle English philology, introductory Germanic philology, Gothic, Old Icelandic, and Medieval Welsh. He also had some knowledge of Finnish, and Finnish would later really influence his creation of Elvish. Um, or his continuing creation of Elvish, as we will get into later. I guess apparently in his courses with Old English texts, he the first day the students would walk in and he would recite the first couple pages of Beowulf in Old English. Hannah and I had a high school teacher who did the same exact thing when we started Beowulf. Yeah, that's cool. That yeah, so that would get you excited about language right there. Oh, no, right? If you just walk in and all of a sudden you're just like, what is this thing that's being saying and you're studying? I bet, I bet he oh. said it super dramatically, too. Oh, of course he did. Informative. Yeah, I think that there is a recording of him reading Ooh. it somewhere on the internet that I have heard. And it's very like dramatic and throaty and kind of I always love hearing authors that I like saying things because they're speaking voice and their writing voice. They're not necessarily the same or anything like that, but I think like I get a better sense of them. Or of what they, the intent that they had in their work. Like, also recordings of Tolkien reading some of his poetry out loud. Oh, that sounds lovely. It's on brainpickings.org, which is a really awesome site that has a bunch of things Sweet. like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, Tolkien also was really interested in constructing languages, uh, which sometimes overtook his academic and scholarly pursuits, and he didn't always publish as many things as he maybe ought to have as a professor at a high-ranking university in that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but he did create a lot of languages, and he wrote seven different essays about the construction of languages, one of which was um, uh, basically talking about his own love of invented languages. And this was later made into a book called A Secret Vice. But the first essay was in 1931, and it was his public reveal of the fact that he did create languages. He talked a lot in this essay about phonoesthetics, which is uh, the artistic aesthetic of a language, which he thought was as important as their kind of auxiliary usage, day-to-day -day usage. Um, so he was like a calligraphy kind of fan in that sense? More like, like the way a language sounds, oh. like when it flows up, um, or how language can be beautiful um, as you speak the it. The aesthetic, but in a musical sense. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking um, um, the little that I've seen of um, Tolkien languages, like Tangwar looks beautiful. Yes. He also did have the writing that was, I think, so I think that might be part of it as okay. well. Because he, and in the essay, he talks about Greek, Finnish, and Welsh as examples of languages, um, which have a very characteristic and in their different ways, beautiful word form. Uh, yeah. That I could refer to either one. Yeah. Because I know Greek used to be um, a tonal language. And it has a different, Greek has a different writing structure. But Finnish and Welsh don't have like a calligraphy style writing. Yeah. So I was assuming he meant sound. Yeah. When I've heard people speaking Welsh, it's very fluid. 
it like kind of trips around the mouth in a very interesting way. Fun fact, Viggo Mortensen, aka Aragorn, speaks Finnish. Wow. Like fluently. Yeah, I, I heard, I heard like, they did a premiere or something of uh, like the Return of the King in Finland and he got up on stage and was just speaking. And I think Orlando Bloom or one of them kind of pokes our head and I was like, we don't know what he was saying. He could be talking shit about us, but it sounds pretty. I remember that video. <laughs> yeah. They just look so stunned in the background. They're like, uh. <laughs> he knows what? <laughs> Too cool. Viggo Mortensen, too cool. Right. Oh my God, I can only meet that man. <laughs> oh. So Tolkien was known to have constructed his first language, um, which never really were part of the Lord of the Rings, um, but there is like journals and stuff that have his first created language when he was about 13 years old. And he continued to work on all of his language creations until his death. Like, he was continuously changing them and working on them. And part of this plays into his idea that language does change over time. And so if he is writing this mythology, then the language that it is written in over time would also change. Um, so even the creation of his mythology was based in language. That's so cool. I love that so much. I mean, I I always love talking about how language evolves over time and... This is a very good example of someone literally playing that out in their own life. And that's also impressive to have an obsession that lasts that long. Like from your time you're 13 and up until you die, you're obsessed with creating language. That's amazing. Creating language and creating people and myths because the the language was necessary for the people and the people were necessary for the language. It was just such a big undertaking is where you create a world that can support the language you made. To, to jump back to finish really quickly, I found a quote that I had written down uh, where he described the finding of a Finnish grammar book as entering a complete wine cellar filled with bottles of an amazing wine of a kind and flavor never tasted before. Evocative. I adore Tolkien. So That's a beautiful much. way of putting it. I hope he didn't say that when he was 13 because he shouldn't have been drinking wine. <laughs> no, my guess is Finnish he didn't study until later in life. Yeah. Like, how would you be exposed to it? He was, he was British and he lived in England all of his life as far as I know. I mean, I'm sure that um, he, it was probably in his studies. But that's still like... That's a pretty random one to pick up out of all of those. Like the Old Norse and all of those kind of make sense if he was into these big epics. But then Finnish, I don't know a ton about Finnish. Some of my favorite webcomics are Finnish, but that's about all I have. And Tolkien was actually born in South Africa. Oh, I'm learning all kinds of things about this man. Well, he was born in South Africa, and then later his uh, mother moved him to Birmingham, Birmingham, England. So Tolkien started creating languages for Middle-earth in his mythology in 1910, which is before he started writing The Hobbit um, and before he went to the trenches in World War I, which is more than likely where he started having the idea for The Hobbit. Um, he was still in King Edward's school in Birmingham, England, and I found some information breaking down based off of his journals, uh, the, like, the creation of Elvish over time. So he first worked on Elvish from 1910 to 1911, and this first became Kenya, which is 
Kenya and Sindarin are the two kind of more well-known elvishes. I always thought that was Quenya. I, I always say Kenya, but that might just be because I lived in Quebec and the Q-U-E is a K sound. I'm fine with calling it Kenya. I, I'm not really sure. You know, if anybody listening to this podcast actually knows how it's pronounced, enlighten us. Um, and then he kept working on Kendian, Common Elderin, and Goldogrin from about 1910 to 1930. From 1935 to 1955, Goldogrin became Noldorin. He also then added Tellerin, Ilkorin, Doriathrin, and Avarin. And then in 1955 to 1960, Ilkorin and Dora- Doriathrin completely disappeared, and Noldorin matured into Cinder. Are these all elvish? These are all oh my elvish. Gosh. Like, he created languages only to stop using them, and then to morph them from a primitive version to a mature version, just like actual language would. Like, the, the topics they were discussing got more complex, or? Grammar structure. Um, oh how words were used, what words were used, but more than likely grammar structure was the biggest change. I'm guessing this also means that like other languages, there was some sort of influence of one kind of Elvish to another. Um, Like when I was living in Quebec, we had so many words that were from American English that had gotten just kind of morphed into a version of French that were used. Loan words are pretty common. Uh, I was in Ireland and um, Irish is still a language there that they speak. Um, but they had to evolve it and they were trying to come up with ways to describe modern things in Irish. And so their word for mobile phone was phone, which is pocket phone. It's so awesome. But they don't have a word for phone. So phone was just taken from the word phone. Mm. I really liked that in Quebec, in, in France, French stationé would be to park a car. And in Quebec, they literally were just like parquet. <laughs> Also, a fun fact about Quebec, this is a total tangent, the word for char literally comes from the word chariot, and that's what they use for car. Ah. What's the French one? Voiture. 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 V-O-I-T-U-R-E. Anyway, fun facts about languages. Um, another kind of indicative of Tolkien's obsession with language he has said that, quote, I should have preferred to write in Elvish, end quote. Which this means that nobody except for the people who decided to learn Elvish would have ever been able to read The Lord of the Rings. He also, therefore, wanted to write Lord of the Rings is about 453,000 words oh in Elvish. Like, the entire thing. Like, how hilarious is that? I mean, awesome, but also kind of hilarious to want to write a book in a made-up language that no one speaks. That would be a serious work of dedication, because then someone has to translate that, too. I mean, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have both been translated into other languages, like hundreds of them, probably. Mm -hmm. And he viewed his entire work of writing The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as if he were translating ancient documents. Because English wasn't the language that he thought of them being written in. He basically saw himself as translating, like like the big red book in The Lord of the Rings that Bilbo and Frodo wrote in. It was almost as if he had found that. And it was written in Westron, which is the language of Hobbiton. 
And so in his production, Creation of Lord of the Rings, he was translating the Big Red Book from Westron into English. So that gets us into uh, this wonderful Tumblr post. Uh, so this is a Tumblr post from Emil under the name of Merkwoodist. This came from this person saying, one of the ballsiest things Tolkien ever did was write 473,000 words about some hobbits called Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin, and then writes in the appendices that their names are actually Mara, Bon, Kali, and Rezel. Because he was translating, right? So those would have been his Westron names. The first ones are the Westron names? The second ones are the Westron names, and then the ones that we read in the book are the translated names. This is just, like, mind-blowingly confusing. (laughs) Right, so so this is where Tolkien becomes a real nerd because so this and this is what the post the Tumblr post is saying. Mara is a Westron name, which means wise. Weirdly enough, Frodo is an actual Proto-Germanic name that actual people used to have, and it means the same thing. Banazir is Westron for half-wise or simple, and in Proto-Germanic, the prefix Sam means half, and wise is obviously a word we still so use. So rude. Right? Uh, Razaner means traveler or stranger, which is also the meaning of the word peregrine. The falcon? Uh, well, because it was peregrine Took, but they call him Pippin. That's so cool, though. Like, peregrine falcon, and it means, like, wanderer. Yeah. And then, uh, according to this post, this one is a twofer, because Razar means a small red apple, and in English, so does Pippin. Yeah, there's those Pippin apples. I will, uh, as someone who sells apples uh, and works for an orchard, technically a pippin is the tiny little seed in tiny of, inside of any apple. And if you plant that seed and it starts to grow, that's a pippin. And it might be, it might be different in British English. Um, they might be referring to what we call crab apples. Technically, pippin is any um, apple tree that has been started from an apple seed and not grafted. That's really cool. And then a lot of East Coast apple varieties are just called some kind of pippin like the newtown pippin if you just throw a bunch of apple seeds you never know what you're going to get but someone might have that apple tree might have just grown and then someone had an apple from it and was like oh that's really good we found this in newtown so it's the newtown yes. pippin anyway fun facts and then mary's name Colomac, is apparently a meaningless name in westron but the shortened form Kali means happy so tolkien decided his nickname would be mary and chose the really obscure ancient Celtic name Meriadoc to match. Tolkien was really, 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 really nerdy about languages and translated his own names from his made-up language to legitimate Proto-Germanic or Old English or Old Celtic names. That's such a weird extra step because we don't even do that if we're translating works now. Like, we don't... It's just their name is still their name. Like, my name... Hannah is Hebrew and it means like grace, but I don't go by grace. <laughs> Although, like, I know, I remember in, I think the Harry Potter, the French version, they did change some of the names. Sometimes they do, actually. That's true. I've seen some people talking about the way that um, works were translated into their language and they're like, why the hell did they think we wouldn't understand this person's name? So they gave them a different one. But yeah. sometimes you should because a person's name is obscene in another language. 
That's true. There was some movie that was like called Joni Loves Chachi and a bunch of people in some Malaysian country went and saw it because Chachi means dick over there. So they thought it was a porno. That's unfortunate. I mean, they didn't get what they paid for. Well, in Quebec, I had to ask my dad to not call me ZZ. Because? It's a word for penis. (laughs) That was an awkward conversation to have with my father. Does he call you ZZ now? He still calls me ZZ. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. I can't tell if he's doing it because he knows it makes me a little uncomfortable now. (laughs) That's good. Um... There's some other really fun information in this Tumblr post about his weird translation. Um, for example, uh, in Westron, hobbits are called kuduk, which means hold-dweller. So for an English translation, Tolkien called them hobbits, which is a modernization of the Old English words hobitla, which comes from hole, and bitla, which means builder. Bitla. Um... He also apparently translated Rohirrim, the Rohirrim names, um, but uh, he does not seem to translate the Elvish ever. The Elvish names are, are the Elvish names. I mean, and if he has such a boner for Elvish and he spent so much time writing it, he's not going to fucking translate it for you. He's like, look, I built this language over most of my life. you got to read it. <laughs> deal with it it's pretty the way it is because it's like finished sometimes characters have special names that are elvish just so they can have elvish names um so that was that was the most of that post that i just found absolutely fascinating it was utterly incomprehensible to me i'm glad you've explained it to me now with people like this who kind of like live their life in a, a different language and a dead language too at that i wonder if they dream in that language do you dream in french It's been a while since I've had a dream in French, but I definitely at one point had a dream that was in Spanish, Italian, French, and English all at once. Yeah. I've had a few that were in different languages, but usually I can't understand them. It's like if I watched too many um, subbed animes or something, or like uh, a movie with subtitles, and then I go to sleep, I'll dream in that language, but I won't know what's going on. Interesting. Because I feel like whenever I dream in another language... I always understand what's being said, like the, the, the words specifically. So you've talked about how Tolkien's life for a very long period of time was devoted completely to Elvish. Did other languages start filtering in there after a while as he realized other races existed in this world that I assume he was just building in his head for some drive to make a language? Well, it was a drive to make a language and also a drive to make a British uh, mythology because he felt like Britain itself didn't have its own mythology in the same way that there was like Norse mythology or Celtic mythology. I would say he's kind of full of shit on that one, but (laughs) I don't know. He is. But from my understanding, that was kind of part of his, like he wanted to create something. And in doing so, the irony of that, right? Like, it's not rooted in anything. Yeah. I mean, when I think of British mythology in the British Isles, I think of fairies and kind of house spirit kind of things like that. But that also is in Ireland as well. So I I guess I, I don't think of a particular British mythology that's very strong, apart from there, like, definitely being dragons. 
<laughs> we should talk about dragons at some point. Oh my goodness, we totally mm, should. I, I actually found a lot less information on his creation of other languages than Elvish, and a lot of the other languages weren't as developed until he started writing Lord of the Rings, or even after he finished the book. Many of his Manish languages weren't developed until the writing of the Fellowship, and he didn't create Numenorian until after he finished the trilogy and started working on the appendices. Numenorian. Numenorian was the the language of Numenor, which was like the original uh, stronghold of So that was like the primordial Manish language? So he made all these Manish languages and then I was like, wait, I have to work backwards? Basically, from my understanding. So he built one language all the way forward and made a fuckload of uh, little extra languages that it stemmed from. And then he built one language and was like, wait, this is too developed. I got to go back. Yeah. And, and I don't know if some of that is because a lot of his other languages seemed to be influenced by Elvish. So like the Manish languages, some of Numenorian was influenced by various kinds of Elvish that he created. And it could be that some of the elvish languages that he created and then discarded became aspects of the like Numenorean or the other mm-hmm. languages. Westron was influenced by Sindarin and Hobbitish is a dialect of Westron. There's so many of them. I'm going to forget all the names of these things. That's okay. I have a list. <laughs> Good. So there are, let's see, one plus six, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, dialects of elvish good god yeah one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen manish languages the language of the dwarves the language of the ents which is also elvish based because the el- the elves woke up the ents so that makes sense the languages of the Anur, who are from valar which is across the water oh, the west people there were people there are they elves uh, they are similar to elves. That's basically how Middle Earth was created. It started in Velar. It was sung into being. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's how uh, Silmarillion starts. With a song? Well, not literally a song, but saying that there was a song and so created the world. I like that. I always liked that. Not a lot of stuff from the Bible stuck with me as a good thing, but that in the beginning, there was the word and... Let there be light. Like, I don't know, just speaking something into being. There's something very, very beautiful and poetic about that as a writer. Right. It shows the power of language. And God Almighty, does Tolkien believe in the power of language? Ooh, does it mean Tolkien is God? Probably a little bit. I mean, if you spent this long building this world and constructing all of this, I don't know. Yeah, definitely, like, the the power of creation is a, f- a very fun feeling. Um, to continue with the list, there's the language of orcs. There's black speech, which was constructed by Sauron, but was influenced by Valoran. And then he also apparently has a warg language and a thrush language. Wargs are like the dog things. Yeah, the evil dog things. So you could talk to the evil dog things? I mean, the, I don't know if people knew how to speak warg, but he had the idea that the wargs had a language themselves. And he wrote that down? I don't think he created that language as thoroughly as the others, but just the idea that they did have speech. I mean, also a lot of animals within the Lord of the Rings had some aspect of 
heightened intellect, like Shadowfax, Gandalf's horse, um, within The Hobbit, Radagast oh, the Brown. Yeah. The birds had a language, yeah. Well, he could speak to them, so, and the rabbits. And I mean, he created a language for trees. That says a lot about his like mentality towards the world that all of these things that we would say don't have language can speak. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting, and this is probably not at all related to what he was thinking about, but I'm getting like major Shinto vibes from that. There's a spirit in absolutely everything and absolutely everything is sacred. I don't know if he would go so far as sacred, but spirit or consciousness. Yeah. The consciousness part. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Very intimidating to think about this world where anything could talk to you. <laughs> or listen to Wouldn't you. Wouldn't necessarily understand you. No. Stone and soil do not appear to have any kind of language or consciousness. What about those big, those big fucking uh, rock giants that fight each other and it's really cool in The Hobbit? Those are mountain giants, though. They're not... I don't think they're actually made of stone. They're pretty stony. Just have very vivid memories of them slow-mo punching each other. And I was like, so cool. Uh, don't even get me started on The Hobbit. I know no one likes those movies except for me. Because it doesn't need to be a trilogy. They made up half of it. The CGI was terrible because they tried to use different technology. Yeah, no. They did a much better job with The Lord of the Rings. Let's put it that way. Well, yes, The Lord of the Rings is a marvel and... The Hobbit is definitely way too long for what it is. Right. Even though they were like, oh, we're pulling from the Silmarillion and stuff like that. It's like, okay. Yeah, but it didn't need to be in there. Yeah. Mostly, I think it was just to explain why Gandalf disappeared for a long time. And they were like, we cannot lose him for this much of the movie. Totally. Well, yeah, I want to I wanna talk about Gandalf at some point, too, because I got a lot of questions about that, man. Yeah, we'll go for it. We'll do deep dive. We'll do deep dive on that. I'm very excited to learn about Dwarvish because I have an extreme stuff spot for dwarves and you told me that they have a sign language. They do have a sign language. Fun fact, apparently Dwarvish has a sign language. I'm wondering what the implications for that are. Like now I'm thinking about, he definitely thought about all of the culture that informed the creation of languages. So what does it mean that Dwarvish has sign language? Because, I mean, they're underground in the dark. Can't really see you that it would make more sense for them to have braille yeah Ooh. i mean they do have like the runes chiseled into rock so you could maybe feel it so um i coming at this with a background in terry pratchett who took a lot of the tropes that tolkien established about elves and dwarves and all these different races and stuff and kind of took them to an extreme to make them a satire Terry Pratchett had a really cool thing about dwarves where they have a thing called mind sign. It's kind of graffiti that they slap up on walls. And I read this book out loud to you on a long road trip, but it's kind of a like pressure release valve for all of the tension that can happen when you're stuck in close quarters with people in um, very enclosed underground spaces for a long period. It's like a symbol or a glyph that people will stick up that kind of takes the temperature of how people are feeling right now. And so magical graffiti. <laughs> I mean, they're putting it up there, but it's it's kind of like a this is how people are feeling sort of graffiti that they put up. It doesn't change color with the mood. That would be so cool. That would be a very cool thing. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. And so that makes sense to me is um, having something that's kind of tactile 
and very much connected to um, community. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to see what the intent of having um, sign language was. Yeah, I don't know yet, but I will. I mean, I'm just excited to hear all about the linguistics. I'm excited for you to be researching all of this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's quarantine, man. What's better than uh, Tolkien quarantine? <laughs> He's a good companion for quarantine. Uh, listen, at least he gives a lot of things to read. A wide variety. Yes, you can read the academic text. You can read the, the battle scenes and stuff. And I all this Silmarillion so I can reread the Silmarillion. There you go. What is the Silmarillion about, actually? I've been wondering. Kind of like Genesis in the Bible. It's like the before the Lord of the Rings history of Middle Earth, the creation of Middle Earth, all of the, you know, who Morgoth was, which created Sauron, who the wizards are, where they came from. I'm excited for you to reread that because now I want to know all of these things. <laughs> it's, it's about as hard to get through as some of the books in the Bible. No, see, this is why I want you to read it and tell me about it. Okay. <laughs> I have sinister machinations with this podcast where I just want you, I want the, the <laughs> Zoe filtered version of Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth. I bring the like nasty Tumblr stuff to you and give it to you. And we get very excited about that too. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for telling me all about Tolkien's elvish linguistics and how long he was working on all of these kind of mythos to build a language. I had a lot of fun. And thank you for listening. Um, Thanks for joining us again. uh, Finding the Glitter in the Gold, our podcast about Lord of the Rings and just talking through all of his twists and turns and the twists and turns that people put in his stories uh, as well. And we will catch you next time. Bye.